Okay, well, thanks for being here today. Um, I want to, before we start, I want to uh, announce that next week, Kara is going to be talking about some of the amazing things that God has done in her life and sharing her story. It's our newest, will be our newest installment in the My Story series. I'm really excited about that. Don't miss it. Everybody be here. It's going to be good. I'm really looking forward to it. Troy, are you going to be playing a role in that? We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> Love this guy. All right, so uh, back in January, now this, and this is where John gets up and walks out of the room. <laughs> back in January, we started this series of lessons based on the book by Steve Timmons called I Really Wish Jesus Hadn't Said That. And after a long and lengthy digression into topics like fear, worry, pressure, measuring faith, uh, today we are going to examine number 8 of 10 of those difficult, hard-to-swallow sayings that Jesus gave us. Um, and all of these are available on the church website. You can get there through the church app if you've missed one or just want to go back and hit one of those again. Um, but, uh, chapter 1, deny yourself, take up your cross, from Luke chapter 6. <laughs> chapter 2, loving your enemies, from Mark chapter 8. And I, this is the, for a lot of us, I think that was the, uh, the one lesson that was where the knife not just got stuck in, but twisted a little. Um, it's still been the standout for me, as far as uh, difficulty and, and aspirations go, but one of the takeaways from that lesson was that in a world where hating those who hate you is not just accepted but expected, Jesus calls us to be radically different and to love, pray for, and do good to the people that hate us, curse us, and abuse us. Y'all remember that? Yeah. I tried to forget it, Coop, but thanks for bringing it back to our remembrance. Chapter three was our lesson three was on forgiveness from Matthew chapter eighteen. Jesus expects his grace toward us to produce grace from us toward others. When we choose to forgive, we are saying that we trust God not only with our own sin, but with the sin that has been done against us. Chapter four was on uh, the fact that you cannot serve both God and money in Luke chapter sixteen. Chapter 5 about stay awake and how we should live in light of His return all of the time. We should be looking for it and prepared for it. Um, and He told us to be on guard and to stay awake because He knew that we have this tendency, Amy, to just kind of be lulled to sleep while we're driving along on the highway of life. And it's, it's like we just, we just start to doze off and we lose focus on what's really important and where our priorities should be. Chapter 6 from Luke chapter 10 was on love your neighbor. Uh, and Jesus, we looked at the parable of the Good Samaritan, and Jesus taught us that compassion and mercy is blind. It doesn't make judgments about the person in need, and it doesn't set limits on the help it gives, and that we cannot eliminate anyone from the category of our neighbor. Um, last week... We talked about communication and proximity. Y'all remember that, those of you that were here? And I just thought it was pretty cool that during the 11 o'clock service, Dave Bunch got up and he started his service intro talking about proximity. Um, and 
I thought that was cool. Now, what he was talking about and I was talking about in relationship to proximity were different, but proximity is just not a word that you hear very often in church circles. And um, I noticed some of you out there giving me crazy looks. And then Merrill gets up and his sermon is uh, about his lead-in, was talking about Jesus and his wilderness experience and talking about the most powerful voice. I don't know if y'all caught all that. Um, like I said, I did get some crazy looks from a few people, but it was cool stuff. And all I could say was just thank you, Jesus, for the confirmation um, that we were on the right track uh, last Sunday. This week, I want to pick back up with the, uh, the I, has, I wish Jesus hadn't said that and, and talk about family. Um, what is the first word that comes to your mind whenever you hear the word family? Maybe it's not a word, maybe it's a feeling or an image, but first word that comes to your mind whenever you think about family. Mark said, go. Love. Love, okay. How many's going to raise their hand on that one just to get the quick out? Yep, okay. <laughs> yep, oh, I was in on that one. Yep, that was the first thing. Anybody else? Just the togetherness. Togetherness, okay. Anybody else? Home. Home, okay. It's the first thing you think of whenever you think of the word or, or the concept of family. Or maybe it's not the first thing you think of, but it's the best thing you think of whenever it comes to family. Might be a better way to say it. Relationship. Relationship. Okay. Love, togetherness, relationships. <coughs> digging it. Anybody else? Um, you know, the word family, the concept of family, is really one of those um, emotionally charged words. Uh, you can't disassociate the concept family from the emotions that you have attached to it. You, you, you respond to it on, the, on this emotional level, and, and it kind of depends on your experience, uh, what you've had with family. Jesus had some things to say about family, and we want to look at one of those sayings today from Mark chapter 3, verses 31 through 35, and this is in the New Living Translation. It says, Then Jesus' mother and brothers came to see Him. They stood outside and sent word for him to come out and talk with them. There was a crowd sitting around Jesus, and someone said, Your mother and your brothers are outside asking for you. And Jesus replied, Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? It's just kind of strange. I mean, shouldn't he know <laughs> who his mother is and who his brothers are? You know, Jesus is making a point because in verse 34 it says, then he looked at those around him and said, Look, these are my mother and brothers. Anyone who does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. How many of you guys remember uh, the movie Mrs. Doubtfire? All right, Robin Williams, 1993, people. Okay, that's whenever that came out. So it's been a little while. So Robin Williams is this uh, down-on-his-luck guy who the only job he can find is a uh, man-in-drag would-be nanny to an affluent family. <laughs> in the closing scene, Mrs. Doubtfire is responding to a letter from a young girl, and she's writing to Mrs. Doubtfire because she's struggling with her parents' divorce. Parents are going through a messy divorce, so she writes to Mrs. Doubtfire. And the movie closes with Ms. Doubtfire saying, There are all sorts of families, Katie. 
Some families have one mommy. Some families have one daddy or two families. Some children live with their uncle or aunt. Some live with their grandparents. And some children live with their foster parents. Some live in separate homes and neighborhoods in different areas of the country. They may not see each other for days, weeks, months, or even years at a time, but if there's love, dear, those are the ties that bind, and you'll have a family in your heart forever. Now, it seems really sweet, but, you know, there were some people that uh, didn't really care for Mrs. Doubtfire's observations on family. Uh, I would argue that she's simply engaging with the world as it was in 1993 and as it is even more so here in 2015. Instead of some Hollywood happily ever after ending, this is real world stuff about families. Because families are comprised of sinful and imperfect human beings. Even the best ones. That's still what you're dealing with. And they are often messy and complicated and nobody can infuriate you like your family members. They know exactly which buttons to push or they've been on that button so long that it doesn't take much to set you off, right? But at the same time, they're caring. It can be harmful or hurtful or nurturing. It can be frustrating. They can be forgiving. They can be, it's complicated, messy stuff whenever you start talking about family, and they are seldom all that we want them to be. And in ways that we'll probably never fully understand, they shape us. They shape how we look at other people. They shape our perceptions about God. They, they shape our perceptions about love. It, it's, it's complicated stuff. And for all that's good about the family unit, and for all of the commitment that conservative Christians make to it, those words of Jesus in Mark chapter 3 should really come as a little bit of a shock to us. They, they jar our cultural and societal sensibilities. I mean, this is Jesus, and Jesus is all about love and all about family and here he is in Mark chapter 3, he's challenging the very idea of what we normally think of as family. What are you talking about, Jason? Well, let's look at it. At first glance, you know, if you take it just face value, just as it appears in Scripture, Jesus' statement it seems to belittle that biological family. It's placing the biological family in a, in a lower order further down the, the totem pole, I guess. He's definitely placing a higher value on something else other than the blood ties and the shared genetic material. In this statement, Jesus tells those who are following Him who their family really is. Fellow followers of Jesus. He also highlights what I think is a pretty awesome truth. That as his followers, we are welcomed into his family. Now that's pretty cool. Jesus calls those who follow him his brothers and sisters. So, well, how is that bad? How does, why would I wish Jesus hadn't said that? I mean, because this is all good, right? Brothers and sisters with Jesus. I'm a part of Jesus' family. Where's, where's the negative there? Well, let's look at it again. And let's consider it in the context in which he said it. And while I'm on that topic, let me just say, context matters. 
whenever you get ready to do some analysis of Scripture, the first rule that I would tell you, now who am I, but the first rule that most scholars would tell you is context, 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 because context matters. Um, there's a little humorous story about this, uh, this young guy who was really struggling with where he was in his life at that point and uh, just had a lot of issues going on and, and needed to hear from God. And so he did what some of us have done. Let's be honest here. God, I really need you to speak to me. So I'm going to open up my Bible. I'm going to close my eyes, thumb through, and I'm just going to point to a scripture and that's going to be your word to me. Nobody in here has ever done that? Uh few of you have because you got that grin on your face. So the, the guy does that. He opens up, he thumbs through, he points, he opens his eyes, and it says, and Judas went out and hanged himself. He kind of put him in a little bit of a bind. He was like, God, I know, I know your word, and your word is infallible, and your word gives us clear direction for our lives, so you got to show me what it is that you're trying to get through to me in this scripture, so I'm going to do it again. So he closes his eyes and he thumbs through the Bible and he just opens it up and he points and he, whenever he opens his eyes and looks at it, it says, and go and do ye likewise. It is horrible. But you know what? We do the same thing whenever we take stuff out of the Bible and, and without there being context around it. The cultural context into which it's spoken, the time period, um, the other scriptures around it, all that stuff matters, so context matters. We'll get back on point here in a hurry. <clears throat> okay, so let's look at it. Mark 31 through 35. Mark chapter 3, 31 through 35. Then Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him. They stood outside and sent word for him to come out and talk to them. There was a crowd sitting around Jesus, and someone in the crowd said, Your mother and your brothers are outside asking for you. They want to see you, Jesus. And Jesus replied, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Then he looked at those around him and said, Look, these are my mother and brothers. Anyone who does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. In these five verses, Jesus is he is just he is boring down deep into the foundations of his society, and he is planting the theological equivalent of high powered explosive. He's getting ready to do some blasting. Get a grip on this. Jesus is saying, you think that I should stop doing what I'm doing right now and go out and meet my family because you think and you have been taught that family is XYZ. Family is, is blood and DNA and, and shared ancestry Mommies and daddies, you think your primary community is your little nuclear family. But I'm going to blow that out of the water right now. I've, I've done the boring. I've laid the explosive. Let me just go ahead and explode that idea because family isn't that. Your primary community is the community of those who follow me. The most significant people in your life, the people who have the greatest influence and hold the greatest sway of your, over your decisions are fellow believers. Wow. 
that's that's pretty shocking. I mean, that see, that sounds like fanaticism. Okay, this 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 sounds like that weird cultish stuff with the mass suicides. You're going to ignore the things that put aside mom and dad and brothers and sisters and then do what this community does. That sounds like fundamentalist weirdo stuff where there's suicide bombers. I mean, can we just be honest? This is pretty radical stuff. Jesus is saying, this is your primary community, the people that follow me. Sounds like social error. This thing makes people uncomfortable. I mean, it's almost to the point where we want to like reinterpret what Jesus is saying. Like, that's not what it really means. What it really means is this. Because don't we all know that being a good Christian means being faithful to family? Think about how much we evaluate. I'm asking you to do this this morning. Engage your brain if you're not going to sleep yet. Think about how much we evaluate gospel faithfulness today with being faithful to its, its personal fidelity to your nuclear family. Okay? Case in point. Politician wants to run on a platform of family values. Those are usually the fundamentalists, right? You let that guy mess up maritally and what's called into question? Everything. Okay? Based on the fact that he's not being faithful to family, everything else gets called into question. In our society, a faithful believer is first and foremost committed to their marriage, to their kids, to their parents, and to their siblings. Now, Jason, are you saying that we can just ignore our wives, ignore our husbands, ignore our kids, we can live here at the church, we can never go to work, we can never take care of the house, we can spend all of our time and energy there at the church because that's our primary community, and we can just groan and travail and connect with God and connect with each other and all that other stuff just is... No, of course not. Of course the Bible calls us to faithfulness in our families and to our God-designed and God-appointed roles that we have in those biological families. Of course He does. The, the Bible's not going to contradict itself. Okay, Jesus is God-made flesh, right? He's, he's the author of the law, and He said that you should honor your father and mother. He's not going to contradict that principle. Children are to be cared for and instructed, and wives and husbands are to enjoy a mutual and exclusive intimacy. But for so many, the nuclear family is the defining element in their lives. Happiness and purpose and fulfillment are found in that nuclear family. And people sacrifice anything and everything for the sake of it and believe that they are virtuous and honorable in doing so. And for many of us, it's because the nuclear family has become a replacement for what God designed the church to be. Well, I mean, what do you think is going to happen? Whenever the church is, I mean, it's a little more than a weekly event and a formal institution, and I spend a couple of hours with you people and then I'm done. Jesus provides very little encouragement for that point of view. 
His mother and brothers called for Him. And not only does He not meet their expectations, He calls into question their status. Who, are my, who is my mother? Who is my brother? And maybe even their identity. Jesus shows no deference, no sense of obligation to that biological family in this instance. Instead, He shows that the claims of His biological family on Him are no stronger than those of the relative strangers with Him in the room. That is, if they're doing the will of God. Jesus said the the constraints, the obligations, the expectations of the people that are in my little nuclear family are no stronger than the constraints and obligations and expectations of the people here with me in this room right now. Because you're doing the will of God. So let's look then at context. Because earlier on in Mark chapter 3, we see Jesus appointing this group that we call the Twelve, right? This select band of men that He chose to be with Him during this earthly ministry, and He called them apostles. Now Jesus knew full well the significance of the number twelve. This was no accident, right? What does that point back to? Twelve tribes of Israel, right? Jesus is, is pulling up that that's Old Testament symbol, uh, symbolism of the twelve tribes of Israel whenever He appoints twelve apostles. So whenever Jesus appoints these twelve apostles, He's making a statement about reconstituting the people of God under His rule. Just as God originally chose and defined His people and organized them into twelve tribes under that Mosaic covenant, Jesus, as that Old Testament God made flesh, has the same right to define what and who made up the people of God under this New Testament of the Gospel. Y'all with me? Okay. Old Testament God said, these twelve tribes... That's my people. That's my family. I'm making this definition. This is who it is. Jesus, Old Testament God made flesh, said, here are twelve. This is a reconstitution of my people right here. So not only does Jesus, the Messiah, right? Not only does He have the authority to redefine what it means to be a part of God's family, He's also got the power to do so. Context, remember? Because there are miracles recorded in the first three chapters of Mark. He's casting out demons and He's healing all kinds of sickness. I mean, it shows us that Jesus, He's no ordinary rabbi. He's not just any run-of-the-mill teacher. He's got authority and He's got power. So His choice of twelve apostles isn't some kind of silly, random, arbitrary posturing. He's just trying to get up in front of His followers and say, ooh, look what I can do. Jesus says this, right here, this is community. But He doesn't stop there. He says this community, made up of those who follow Me, is not only the real community that God has been working toward all along, but it is also the real family. Some of y'all... I can see the wheels turning. I don't know if you're struggling, if you want to argue and you're just biting your tongue, I don't know. It's okay. I've put this topic off for over a month now. Y'all know that, right? 
Because I've said it in here before. I'm, I'm putting this off. It wasn't just because John wanted to leave happy. It's because I, I, it, I was having trouble making this thing make sense to me. So maybe this will help you. Maybe let's draw a parallel between what Jesus is doing here in Mark chapter 3 and the biblical institution of marriage. One of the reasons, guys, that marriage exists is that it points to the ultimate relationship between Christ and the church. Watch this. The relationship between Christ and the church is not meant to point us to marriage as if marriage between a man and a woman itself was the most important thing. I mean... Is marriage eternal? No, right. Y'all remember that story because they tried to trick Jesus with that whole story. Remember uh, this woman, she's married and the husband dies before she can have a son. And so then, according to that old tradition, she marries his brother and then he dies before he can give her a son. And then he married. And seven times she gets married. And whenever there's the resurrection, whose husband is she going to be? Trying to trick, you never want to like try to trick Jesus, okay? Don't, it's just not a good idea. Jesus, he blows that out of the water. He says, there's not going to be any giving and taking in marriage in the resurrection. It, it's, it, it's done with. Marriage is a temporary thing. So, no, marriage is in, intentionally created it, a signpost, okay? It, it demonstrates that important relationship between Christ and the body of the church. That order is vital. It's not the earth... Here's what I'm trying to say, <laughs> Mr. Communicator. It's not the earthly institution of marriage that is the important thing. The important thing, the eternal thing, is the relationship between Christ and the church. And the relationship between man and wife points to that relationship. Everybody on board? Okay. So it is then with the nuclear biological family. It was, it's a prototype, Steve, of the eternal community that God's creating. This is it in rough form. This is it in earthly terms so that you can see it of what's coming in the eternal. Paternal relationships, sibling relationships, all this complex mix of joy and irritation it's designed to give us an insight into what being brothers and sisters in Christ is all about. Do your brothers and sisters in Christ ever give you joy? Yes. Do they ever irritate you to the nth degree? Stick around long enough, it's going to happen. So Jesus gives us this earthly prototype of a biological family to say this is what it's going to be like and this is what it means to be in your real community, in your real family. Can I get off this, this point now? Because I'm, I'm hammering it. Like, Please, get off that point. Move on. My parents, my parents got divorced whenever I was really young. Um, my biological father, Richard, he left to go do other things and uh, pretty much disappeared out of my life for 40 years um, through a very strange series of events. About five years ago, he reached out to me and, and uh, we reconnected, sort of. But my mom met this absolutely wonderful guy named Billy. Not William, his name is Billy. Okay. And he was also divorced. 
Both of them had said, I'm never getting married again. Okay, that's how it happens. Billy never treated me like anything other than his flesh and blood. I was his son. From the get-go. And whenever I was old enough to understand it and, and really get what it, all of the implications and what it really meant, we took the steps to legally change my last name from Malone to Cooper. And the way that Billy accepted me and loved me and cared for me as a young child is such a wonderful example that God has given me of what family is all about. Community. Family. It's not defined by human blood. Because I didn't have Billy's blood. But he still called me son. And treated me like a son. And instructed me and disciplined me like a son. But you got to get it all. Come on now, we want to be a child of God. You... You get the blessings of living in the Father's house, but you get the Father's instruction and discipline too. But that's, that's, an, that's an example of how it, it's not just the blood. That the parameters and boundaries and safe walls of family are set by divine blood. By His blood. And I'm looking at a group of people in here today, every single one of you have had that blood applied to your life. So we can call each other brother and sister. The beauty, and, and this, this is amazing right here, the beauty of Christ's definition of family is that it works both ways. If your experience with family is one of brokenness, pain, separation, suffering, strife, abuse then the restorative grace of being brought into and welcomed into the family of God brings you freedom and hope and peace. And you can see by being a part of family what it's really meant to this family, this eternal family, you can see this is what it's really meant to be. But on the other hand, if your experience with family has been enjoyment of a happy family life, a, a safe home, and, and, and love and care and nurture, then it provides a great opportunity to bless others with what you have learned and enjoyed through the positive family relationship you've had. That's the beauty of Christ's definition of family. It works both ways. Isn't that awesome? I think it's pretty cool. Now, there, there's tons here. <laughs> tons here. Uh, but I've, I've got to finish. Yes, I do. Um, when I was completing the eighth grade at Live Oak Middle School, I've been trying all morning to remember her name. She was my eighth grade English teacher. She was um, one of the few black teachers that I had because... Live Oak is just vanilla, white. Okay. I'll think of her name. It's going to be probably like 2 o'clock in the morning, but I'll, I'll remember it. 
But, um, man, she was tough, but I loved her. I loved her. And uh, whenever I, I was finishing the eighth grade, I got this little part to play in the eighth grade graduation ceremony, you know. And she tasked me with reciting the poem Invictus by William Ernest Henley. Anybody ever heard it? Okay. Uh, it, it's a cool poem. The last stanza of that poem goes like this. It matters not how straight the gate or how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Guys, despite everything that our Western American individualistic self-made man, society, and culture tells us we are not the self-ruling individuals we like to imagine. This is a unique Western, I'll even say North American struggle. Other cultures don't deal with this struggle like we do. Guys, William Ernest Henley, he wrote a great poem, but he got it wrong. Because the reality is, we belong to another in a very deep and profound sense. I belong to you, and you belong to me. We do not rule ourselves, but we submit ourselves to one another under Jesus. Okay? Prove it. Here you go. Ephesians chapter 2, 19 through 21. Watch this. Paul wrote to the Ephesians. He said, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. You have a community. But fellow citizens with God's people and also members of His household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, which Christ Jesus Himself is the chief cornerstone. In Him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple to the Lord. The language here is pretty clear, it's pretty simple, and it's pretty awesome. Church is family. The body of Christ is family. We are united together in an eternal family that is intended to glorify our Father. So just as those previous seven sayings of Jesus we've looked at, these words Jesus spoke about family, they absolutely wreak havoc with my assumptions and with my comfort. But I'm, am I glad that He said them? You bet I am. You bet I am. Questions, comments, observations? Come on. Nobody? It is 1041, BT. All right. That's what I was waiting on. So this unique, uniquely North American 
North American struggle, why does it exist here and not somewhere else to the degree that we have it? <clears throat> um, my English teacher brain goes to um, turn of the 19th century William Wadsworth Longfellow and Henry David Thoreau um, that whole transcendentalists go out and commune with nature and become one with God uh, stuff that went on okay but one of the things that came out of that was this, it was a statement of what had been building in the country for decades, which is you are your own master. You control your own fate. You direct your own course. And you alone are responsible for that. And part of that... Which was a kickback against the British monarch. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we had that pioneering spirit, right, here in America. That's how the West was won. You know, these people, these rugged individualists struck out across the country before interstates and railroads, and, and they made it. Now, a bunch of them died, but some of them made it, and we get the West Coast and manifest destiny and all that stuff. Um, so it's a, I, that's why I say it's uniquely American definitely uniquely North American that we are going to we're going to make it ourselves we depend I depend on myself we to a degree we ingrain that in our children I do you take care of your responsibilities Julie can tell you right now how many times I've yelled that told that to my children why should I have to go behind you and do such and such you are competent, you are intelligent enough to do this on your own. And that's, that's not to say there's anything wrong with that, in teaching some individual responsibility, but from the reading that I've done and a few missionaries that I've talked to, in other countries there is this overwhelming sense of you don't have to do it all on your own. It takes a community just to survive. In some of these places. Well, hold on a minute now because we, y'all remember when Hillary wrote the book? <laughs> Everybody, we threw a fit about that book. Sure, we did. We said, oh, that's wrong. Everything about that book is wrong. But I never Barbara, read the book. Not Barbara. What's uh, W's wife's name? Uh, Laura. Laura would have wrote the book. I think we would have viewed it differently because of what we're talking about today. But it, it came from the wrong person. I just don't know what, what the, within, and I can't think too big here, so let's just think about our church. I, I, can, I can grasp the 200 people. Uh, we do become disconnected, and I don't know why that is. I don't know why I do it. I don't think it's because I'm trying to venture out on my own. Mm. But here's where the rubber meets the road. When, when somebody is isolated. There are two things that can happen. The isolated one has to reach out or someone who's not isolated has to reach in. And more often than not, one of those things doesn't happen. And that's my question, is, is why. The isolated person is vulnerable. They feel like if, if I reach out and I say, I'm isolated, help me. 
and they'll be viewed as something that's weak or mm. not intelligent or whatever. There, the other side says what? It says, if I reach down or reach to the isolation, I have to leave my little circle. Mm -hmm. And my circle feels good. I don't know where I'm going with all this. But you, you see what I'm saying? It's I like it too. I like it too. And I like Thoreau. When, when I read Thoreau's stuff, it, it, I feel like that. He knew, he knew me. Uh -huh. It speaks to a sense of self sufficiency. I have a problem. I'll be I'm very transparent with you. I have a real problem with dependency. I do not want to feel dependent on anyone at any time. I, I aspire to be self sufficient. What you're talking about is being dependent on other members of the body of Christ. And that speaks to a level of weakness. You can't do it on your own. You need this other person. Well, I don't want you. As much as I like you, I don't want to need you. No, I don't mind you. Why? Why? Because it speaks to an inability to take care of yourself. Okay. And that, that when you're talking about this North American, this paradigm in which we live, that's what it's talking about. We are independent. And I don't want to change that. Right. And it does speak to some somewhat pride, but I, I compare, and we compare things. I compare myself, my life, my abilities or inabilities to others, and I want to, I want, I want to be a certain um, example to my family, which is, I don't, you know, and like again, we are a church family, but there's that separation. This is my church family, and this is my biological family. I have. One of the words that you didn't hear when you were talking about a word, whenever you think of family, it's responsibility and obligation. We don't like to think of in family in those terms, but that's what, they, that's what we have. I have a sense of overwhelming obligation and responsibility, born from love, to Hannah, Hannah, Hunter, and Ethel. And I've often told my children, y'all can excruciate me for this, but I often tell my kids, I love you, but I like these other people, there are things I'm going to do for you that I'll never do for them. Okay, and that and I I've taught and I may be wrong, but I teach them you should be self-sufficient to the point where you can help others. You know, so I understand what you're saying with this lesson, and I can appreciate the sense of kingdom-mindedness. But do we do we really need to change that sense of self-sufficiency? Because I think it breeds a, a level of to support others and help others in certain situations. Okay. I mean, that's just... We've really... Um, we've, it's not a tangent. It's definitely part of it. It seems like for some reason we're really focused in on this idea of interdependency as it comes to family. Um, and it, it's kind of throwing me for a loop right now because what I was getting from, from all of this at the beginning was just a sense of inclusiveness um, people aren't necessarily welcome in my circle because they're not that nuclear biological family um, so I, I'll be honest I don't have answers for that I really don't we don't even have questions so this is <laughs>
It's good discussion, though. <laughs> Just for that, I'm going to bring you some more of this next week. Uh, we'll do whatever the Lord leads. Uh, well, next week we have Kara talking to us, and whatever the Lord leads after that, we'll, we'll see. Um, anyway, God, thank you so much for being here with us today. Um, help our brains, help us to process, help it to not just be a head thing, but a heart thing. Uh, there's stuff in your word that appeals to us intellectually, and it can stimulate our emotions, but we know that everything that is lasting is spiritual, so let the stuff that needs to germinate in our spirit, let it happen, and, and let that fruit be born in Jesus' name. Amen.